Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jeffrey Paternostro. Jeffrey is the senior prospect writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, Baseball Prospectus just released their list of the top 101 prospects in baseball. We're going to get into that a lot today. But before we do, tell me what got you into baseball in the first place. I grew up a Mets fan in suburban Connecticut, just outside of Hartford. And actually, my father's side of the family are all Dodgers fans, going back to the Brooklyn days. And when they moved out west, my father's side of the family stayed with the Dodgers. My mother's side of the family, which is from Long Island originally, were also Brooklyn Dodgers fans. When they moved out west, they basically swore off the Dodgers. And when National League Baseball came back to town in 62, they became Mets fans. So this goes back to my grandparents on my mother's side. And when I was a kid, they lived in Florida. So we'd talk on the weekends and we always just sort of ended up talking about the Mets and how the Mets were doing. And it just sort of blossomed for me from there. And why the interest in prospects and in scouting? For me, it's a puzzle that on that you can't ever really solve. But I like sort of figuring out how things work and how they work at the major league level. And the two players that really crystallized this for me uh, were Yusmero Petit and Brian Bannister, both of whom were Mets prospects in the mid-2000s. And I remember seeing Bannister uh, in Double A in 2005. This was long before I started writing about prospects uh, on a regular basis. You know, seeing a guy that sat in the upper 80s, maybe getting the low 90s, four-pitch mix, and you know, now in hindsight, having done this for a few years, you see a lot of those guys in Double A. Most don't make it to the majors or don't even have as much success as Bannister did there. But just watching him, I was sort of struck by the idea that this this looks like it should work at higher levels. This looks like a major league pitcher. And sort of like, I don't want to say I've sort of been chasing that feeling ever since, but a a lot of the job is sort of finding those guys. Was this your first year in charge of the BP list? This is my first year doing a national top 100 list. Yeah, I've been a prospect writer at BP for about 18 months now or so. Before that, I was a minor league editor at Mason Avenue for a few years covering uh, Mets prospects specifically. So how did you go about compiling the list? There's no magic bullet here. It's a lot of conference calls. It's a lot of email threads. It's a lot of talking uh, both with my other staff writers internally at BP, uh, with external team sources. And in the end, it's not really, it's it's a mix of things. It's not really a prep list, but at some points in the list, it's a prep list. It's not strictly a listing of the best OFPs that we gave out on our team list this year. I guess the best way to describe it is you just figure out who you want more than any other prospect in baseball, and you just go down the list from there. Like, who you, who, who would you take? Um, from a from a prospect standpoint, and just go one to one hundred and one. Do you let the other lists that get made, you know, MLB.com, Baseball America, Keith Law, Fangraphs? Do you let those lists influence your list at all? I don't. I don't even read them uh, when I'm in the middle of doing team lists or the one hundred and one. And I think we locked down the one hundred and one probably about six weeks ago at this point, maybe a little before that. Um, obviously, we weren't the first to market uh, publicly unless you bought the book. Uh, the Baseball Prospectus Annual. And look, I can't avoid other sources. It's pretty much impossible. I have to be on Twitter and stuff gets on Twitter. Um, And, you know, I've had 
casual conversations with let's uh, like let's say Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs just about the list process. But we don't talk about players, and we don't really. I try not to let it influence me. Obviously, I've absorbed some of their work from these sources throughout the season. It's kind of unavoidable, but this is. Uh, this is very much my list based on the, the players I saw this year and the players the rest of our staff saw this year. Do you have a preference in terms of high peak versus just quality major leaguer? Do you favor guys that might debut sooner? Where does your preference lie in terms of specific players? I covered this a little bit in the uh, introduction to our list, which is in front of the Atlanta Braves top 10. I think to a certain extent, you do have to chase what we'll call OFP um, just because it's so hard to get an above average major league regular like into your system or into your major league team, your organization or your major league team, really. So a potential above average regular or an actual above average regular. So if you can develop those guys internally, it makes such a big difference. Um, you know, even if there's going to be a longer development time or there's more risk in the profile general, generally, you know, I'm, Again, it's a lot of it's case by case basis, and this is borne out in some places on the 101, uh, and not in others because it depends on the individual prospect and sort of the individual shape of the the prospect and what I think their future performance is. But I will generally take like a OFP 60 likely 45 guy over an OFP 50 likely uh, OFP 55 likely 50 guy. Uh, I'll take the little bit extra downside risk if I can get an above average major league regular into my system. That's the way I look at it when I'm actually making the list. Let's get into some of the players in your top 10. You had Alex Reyes for the Cardinals, ranked number one overall. He was in the top five in many of the other lists as well. Tell me what you saw in him that makes him the number one prospect in baseball. So putting a pitcher there is always risky. There's just more things that can go wrong, even for a guy that's already made the majors and had some success. And this is a cop-out, but I'll make it anyway, and it's true. The way I look at it is any of the five players in our top five could have been the number one overall prospect this year. Um, I, I, I could have, I could see myself signing off on any of the top five at number one. Honestly, Reyes was number one on my first draft and Reyes was number one on my last draft. Sort of going back to the point about upside. We didn't give him an OFP 80, but if there's one guy I think that could be that elite player, that could be a, a number one starter, um, you know, the top of the scouting scale outcome, it's Alex Reyes because he throws 100. He's got two very good secondaries, both of which could get the plus or higher. He's basically already done it in the majors. Um, look, the command needs some refinement, but you can say that about more than half of the pitchers that we ranked in the top 101 this year. And he's got a really high floor because the fallback position is like, I think, one of our staff writers suggested, well, if it doesn't work out, it could be Dylan Batances. And that's a pretty good outcome. And I just, at the end of the day, I just thought the little bit extra chance that he's one of the 10 best pitchers in baseball in the next five years, puts him over the guys directly behind him that I don't think quite have that same ceiling on the position player side. One of the interesting things you mentioned about Reyes in, in the scouting report on the site is that in high school, he topped out at 87. What did he do mechanically to increase his velocity this much? Uh, he aged five years. Um, um, there's effort in the... I mean, these guys pop up all the time. There can be some mechanical refinement, certainly. I think there's a little more effort in his delivery now than there was then. But sometimes these guys just find extra velocity. Um, 
it's very difficult to know what a, a 17 year old is going to look like at 22. Um, you know, that's in a lot of ways, that's what the scouting industry is based on. It's, you know, figuring out of these teenagers and he was, a you know, technically an IFA though. He, he did go to high school in the U S it's like figuring out who are the guys that are going to take those velocity jumps. And it's tough. And it's not even, sometimes it's, you'll identify, oh, okay, we're really good at making this mechanical tweak internally to get some extra velocity out of the player. And the Cardinals, I don't, I don't know what the Cardinals secret sauce is, but they've done this with a few guys over the years. Michael Waka comes to mind who wasn't a teenager when drafted. He was actually a fairly polished college arm, but he showed up the next spring, his first full professional year after being drafted with three or four extra miles an hour on the fastball. So a lot of it is sort of figuring out what your organization can and can't do in terms of melding these players to get that extra jump, whether it's velocity, whether it's raw power, um, whether it's hit tool, you know, swing mechanical changes, figure out what you're good at specifically. You have Dansby Swanson, number two on your list, a player that the Braves are getting this year should be in their starting lineup right away. Not a player with that one defining skill that sticks out, just a guy that seems to do everything well. Tell me a bit about him. Yeah, these are the guys that are tough, a little bit tougher to rank, I think, because there's not one sort of carrying tool you can hang your hat on. We think he'll really hit. Uh, We think he's a pretty good defensive shortstop, not a gold glove winner, but a guy that'll stick at the position uh, and be a a good everyday shortstop defensively. There's not a ton of power. There's some gap power. Um, You know, he could be a low double digit home run guy with some doubles. Maybe uh, he gets a little bit closer to his physical maturity in his mid and late 20s. He's got a strong approach at the plate. Um, he runs well. Again, it's just, and he's a shortstop, and that makes a difference. You know, but this profile, the same profile as a left fielder is not as exciting. You know, it's maybe still a, a, a back-end top 101 guy, depending, again, exactly if it's a guy that's already played 100 or gotten 129 plate appearances or at-bats in the majors. He's one at-bat short of uh, losing his rookie eligibility, which is why he's still eligible for our list. It's just... So this is the flip side of the chase the OFP argument. Here you have a guy that's going to hit at the top of a major league lineup. I don't know if he'll bat second or whatever, but a guy that's going to be a a major offensive cog for a major league team this year, plays a premium defensive position and plays it pretty well, and maybe isn't going to be on the level of of a Francisco Lindor or a Carlos Correa or someone like that but just a really good everyday shortstop that's ready right now, and that's incredibly valuable. Andrew Benatendi is number three on your list. He was number one on a lot of other lists. He's a guy the Red Sox fans saw a lot of last year. He's only eligible for this list because he's got an injury halfway through his uh, call-up, but what are the Red Sox getting in him long-term? I think they're getting the, I don't want to say the left-field version of Dansby Swanson because that sounds like I'm, lower on him because you know left field profile can be a little bit pejorative i I saw him a fair bit in the minors this year in double a when he was playing center field and i think he could probably handle it at least in the short term obviously he's not going to play he's like you can say oh he's the third best center fielder on the red sox though so the battle playing left i think he's probably got the best pure hit tool in the minors right now and there is a school of thought certainly when it comes to making a prospect list like this just bet on the guy that you really think will hit major league pitching because it's really tough to figure that out a lot of the times. And he's done it for again, about a hundred at bats and he did it up and he sure looked the part up and down the, uh, 
minor leagues. We, I'm not the only person on our team that saw him this year, certainly, and all the reports were raves like mine. The thing that stands out for me with Benintendi, and it's funny because I saw, I happened to catch a game. I wasn't working, but I happened to catch, catch a game up at Fenway this year when I was at Sabre Seminar in August uh, after he got called up. And the thing I noticed in the minors is you watch enough games from behind home plate. You kind of get a feel for where the ball is going off the bat when it's hit. Like you hear the sound and you can kind of see the launch angle and you see how the way the fielders react. You got an idea of, you know, where it's going. With Benintendi, like the ball just seemed to go 20 feet further. Even if it was a, a you know, like a standard F8 fly out to center, the ball just seemed to go a little bit further. And he's not a big guy, so that might be part of the sort of cognitive disconnect for me. But I saw it again, like in the majors and doing it against major league pitching. And all of a sudden it clicked for me like, yeah, this guy is going to be really good. And look, he's a left fielder, which means he's going to have to hit a lot to be the sort of the value equal of Dansby Swanson. But I think he will. And that's why we uh, put him as highly as we did. And I think it's totally defensible to put him number one overall as well. Do you think he's the best hitter of this prospect group? I think there's guys that maybe have a little bit more upside overall with the bat. Um, you know, Yohan Moncada, if he puts it all together, could have that kind of uh, high-end offensive impact. Cody Bellinger of the Dodgers is another one who's a little bit further down our list because, you know, he's still in double A and he's a first baseman. But I think sort of the total offensive defensive profile, because I think he'll be a very good defensive left fielder. Uh, puts him over those guys, even if there's maybe a couple names that have, strictly speaking, a higher offensive ceiling. J.P. Crawford, number four on your list, shortstop for the Phillies. Another guy that's expected to get a lot of playing time in 2017. Will the glove play right away in Philly? Oh, absolutely. I know there's been some questions about his bat this year because he didn't put up the same kind of numbers he did uh, at lower levels, the 21-year-old in AAA. I saw him. I think the bat will be fine. I think there is more raw power, especially the pull side, than he gets credit for. Because it, look, it hasn't shown up in games, and it may never show up in games, but it is in there. Um, you know, I've seen him put on a show in BP when he really wants to. I've seen him hit long foul balls to the pull side, so there is a little bit more power in there. But the thing that's going to play right away is the glove. And again, he's not as sort of physically noted, you know, sort of as physically imposing, I guess, as a shortstop as someone like Lindor or someone like Andrelton Simmons. He's just, his instincts are very good. His arm is very good. His actions are very good. He's comfortable around the bag. It's just very smooth. And I remember the first time I saw him was in Lakewood uh, coming out, not coming out of his draft season, his first full season coming out of the draft. I think it would have been 19. So it would have been two years ago, or I guess three years ago, 2014 at this point. And the thing that struck me, and I was not huge on him coming out of the draft because of that profile. It's like, oh, there's not a lot of power here, maybe. It's like a hit tool, shortstop with a with a decent glove. But you never know how those guys are going to come together as like high school shortstops. Like they can very easily be second baseman in a few years, or maybe they don't hit as much in the upper minors. So I was a little bit leery of him uh, as a draft prospect. But I saw him in just taking infield in one BP session, like within five minutes of doing infield drills, like, oh, they have something here. Like it was so patently obvious that he just had that sort of it as a shortstop, like even beyond like the physical tools to play the position. Like he just, he knew where to be. He has that sort of like preternatural shortstop ability that you just sort of know it when you see it. 
So I think that will will play right away in the majors. He's a very, very strong approach. I think he'll hit. He may not have really gouty triple slash numbers, but I think the the total value there on both sides of the ball will be worthy of a, of a very high ranking. We had him number one at midseason. He's another guy that I think I could have uh, gotten to number one if I really wanted to this year, too. Jan Moncada comes in at number five. He's a guy that, of course, was traded this offseason when the Red Sox traded him to the White Sox for Chris Sale. He struggled in the majors in a very small sample size with the Red Sox. The White Sox certainly weren't were ready to trade their best player for him. So what exactly are the White Sox getting in Moncada? I mean, they're getting, if you want to look sort of the guys past Reyes, I always said, already said Reyes has sort of that potential to be an elite top of the scale pitcher. Moncada might not quite be there as a position player, but you can absolutely say he has a higher ceiling than the three bats in front of him. And I don't want to really read too much into his major league performance at all. Uh, he had like, what, a couple months of double A time under his belt when he got called up directly to the majors. I mean, that's a tough jump any prospect to make in any circumstance, let alone getting thrust into a pennant race and having sort of issues getting consistent playing time. I mean, as you would expect for a team in a pennant race, it doesn't look good for a few games. They're probably going to try something else because they're in a pennant race. But the problem is sort of the way he, I don't want to call it failure, but the issues he had in the majors are reflective of the concerns in the profile as a prospect. Generally, there's going to be some swing and miss there. He swings very hard and major league guys can throw him pitch sequences that are going to exploit that. Now, that's something with more double-A time and more triple-A time. I don't know if uh, the White Sox will send him directly to Charlotte this year or keep him back in double-A. They could really do either, since they're not uh, really pressed for time in terms of getting these guys to the majors. And he could come out and start to work through that. And I don't think he's ever going to be Tony Gwynn. I don't think he's going to be a, a you know like a 320 hitter in the majors. He may have enough power and make enough loud contact when he does make contact to be a you know a 290 hitter with serious power and the power speed combination is enticing. Um, I assume the White Sox will send him back to second base, which is probably uh, his better defensive home long term. Though he didn't really get much of a run out at third because the Red Sox moved him only shortly before he was called up. And he has the physical tools to play either position. It's just a matter of, you know, where the tools play best and where he's comfortable playing. But it's a it's a potential all star infielder of some sort, with maybe a little bit higher bust potential than you would expect from the number five ranked uh, prospect, especially a position player one. Yeah, that's interesting. He has one of the highest ceilings of the prospects, but do you think he has the lowest floor of anyone in the top ten? I, do, I want to separate out the pitchers here, mostly because also because Lucas Giolito is 10, and I don't know what to do with Lucas Giolito at this point, other than I ranked him 10. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he could, I don't want to say he could be Brandon Wood, because that's not fair. Um, but he could be more of like a, a 230, 240 hitter with power, which still plays at second base, but isn't really an impact talent nowadays. You know, it's it's a good, solid major leaguer, but it's it's not sort of the all-star heights that we might put on him otherwise. And the guys directly behind him, you know, Austin Meadows is very close to the majors. The power took a step forward this year. The overall profile is uh, really interesting. And there's a couple things might not hit their tool ceiling for him, and he can still be a productive major leaguer. Uh, Victor Robles is the one guy that maybe, like, you know, he's a, 
teenager in advanced A, and there's some quite. He's a teenager in advanced A. I really think he'll hit, but he's a teenager in advanced A, and in double A, I might be singing a different tune. But he's a guy that's so good, so fast and such a good center field defender already. There's probably a pretty high major league floor there as well. I may regret saying that. Uh, you know, Ahmed Rosario is another guy who's a sure shot shortstop with maybe some questions about his hit tool as well long term, which is funny to say about a guy that hit, you know, three three or whatever it was in a half season of double A. He has a little bit unusual of a hand path, which I could see with more looks, higher level arms exploiting. I think he has the barrel control and the bat speed to hit regardless. So all those guys have question marks. I think the difference is, this is something I think we have to be careful of when discussing Moncada specifically, is those guys behind him, we haven't really seen them, again, I don't want to say fail, but really struggle the way Moncada struggled for two weeks in the majors. And that may sort of cloud our our judgment of things like uh, bust rate. And Moncada has struggled at each promotion and then he turns it around, but he takes a while to adjust to the level he's at. So I don't think we can make too much out of his Major League debut. And if the White Sox put him back in double A, then I think that'll just do nothing but help his cause. But looking at another White Sox guy, you mentioned him briefly. Lucas Giolito was the consensus top pitcher in baseball going into last year's prospect ratings, and he's dropped a little bit. Uh, you have him ranked number 10 overall. What caused his drop? Supposedly, the Nationals did play with his mechanics uh, in spring training and early in the season. And as a result, sort of the velocity wasn't there and the command wasn't there. And he's never been a great fastball command guy, uh, even going up the ladder in the minors the last few years. That's been a, an issue he struggled with. He's always had enough you know, fastball velocity, enough other stuff where it hasn't really mattered against minor league bats. He went back to his old mechanics later in the season, but it never really like he didn't get all the way back, I guess. You know, he'd show it in a start here, a start there, an inning within a start. There are worse places for him to land than under the tutelage of Don Cooper, who tends to do really well with, with pitchers in general. And I think, you know, guys that need mechanical tweaks, especially, or maybe another, maybe they, maybe they teach him a slider to work off the curve just to give another look because he has trouble uh, sort of getting the curve for a strike or starting as a strike. And one of the things you saw in, in his major league cameo this year is like major league hitters if you can't show them the breaking ball for a strike or start it in the zone as nice a pitch as it is sort of it's very aesthetically pleasing Uh, and at its best it's a it's a plus plus offering but if you can't locate it they'll just spit on it and wait for a fastball and when he doesn't have his top end fastball velocity or his top end fastball command which he struggled with throughout the season major league hitters will square 94 miles an hour Uh, That's literally their job, and they do it every day. So you've got to have a little bit more than what he had this year. The tools are still in there. You know, sort of the top of the rotation starter is that that projection that's been on him really since he he came out of the draft. He had first overall pick noise around him before his elbow issues. That's that pitcher's still in there, but he's a difficult player to rank because you know coming out of the trade, uh, you could get quotes from industry sources that said, well, we like Ronaldo Lopez more than Lucas Giolito. You know, I got quotes uh, internally from the industry that suggest there are other prospe- uh, other pitching prospects behind him on the list that they like more than Giolito. So 
he is a difficult guy to really figure out right now because of the nature of why his 2016 season was so full of struggles. There's not really one thing you can you can point to. When a team has a prospect like Giolito, who was so regarded for so much of his amateur life, and then he gets drafted high and he's going through the minors, why are they tinkering with his mechanics in spring training? Why don't they just let him be? If I had a good answer for that, I'd probably be working for a team. But I don't really. Um, you know, sometimes this works. Uh, you know, going back to, to Michael Waka. Waka was a, I mean, it wasn't the level of draft prospect that Giolito was, but he was considered a first-round pick. He was drafted in the first round from a, a, a notable Division One college program. A guy that, if you had just, quote-unquote, left him alone would probably have gotten pretty fast to the majors and been like a number three or number four starter in short order. He had all the all the tools there. And they made some changes, and all of a sudden, I mean, he's gotten hurt since then. But the guy that sort of showed up uh, when he was healthy was uh, you know, a full grade above that as a, as a major league starter. So you can get the... Sort of there is, if you think you have the answer you can see some real benefits on the back end. Skipping around on the list a bit, Raphael Devers, still very young, still has lots of power. That power is playing at every level. You think that's eventually going to play in the major leagues as well? Yeah, we like him a lot. He got off to a bad start in the Carolina League this year, which has sort of held his overall line down. If you just look at, uh, you know, again, his triple slash from this season, it's basically a carbon copy of last year's, which, you know, again, when you're a teenager in A-ball, that's not that bad to do it at a higher level, especially given the way he started. It's potential plus hit plus power. The question is, does he stay at third base long term? Uh, the bat will play on the other side of the diamond. But again, it's not as exciting a prospect profile as a first baseman, which is <laughs> true of any first base prospect you'll talk about, unfortunately. But he's still a third baseman for now. And he's, he's more athletic than you'd think. It's just the body is high maintenance. And when you look like that at 19, you've got to hedge a little bit. I mean, I think if we thought he was a definitely a third baseman in the majors, even if it's just like a league average defender there, he's probably a top 10 prospect. And in, that, in with that sort of uh, Austin Meadows, Victor Robles, Ahmed Rosario group. Clybar Torres won the fall league MVP. He was traded in the season for Chapman. The Cubs sent him to the Yankees. How far away is he from being the Yankees starting shortstop? He'll be the Yankees starting something. I don't know if it'll be shortstop. And I say that even, you know, notwithstanding, obviously there's Didi Gregorius already ensconced in the Bronx, and he's a very, very good defensive shortstop. And you know, he's, he's made some strides with the bat since he came over from Arizona. He's a very good everyday player. I mean, Torres will have a, a major league role somewhere on the infield against sort of like Moncada. It might be second base. It might be third base. Sort of the internal reports we have on him are, are more divisive than you would expect, which is why I think we have him a little bit lower than other national sources. I mean, we still have him quite highly. We threw an OFP 70 on him during during the team list process. So we like him quite a lot. I just I want to see a little more performance in the upper minors. I want to get a better handle on what the actual sort of power ceiling is there outside of Arizona when all he can, has to do is, you know, hit the ball hard in the desert off you know, like gas double A relievers, which is a lot of sort of the what you see on the pitching side in that league. But I would say with a good double A season this year, you could see him probably as soon as sometime in 2018, depending on the the Yanks may not be a team that really cares about service time manipulation. So with a good 2017 season, 
he could, uh, you know, certainly put himself on the radar for a, a major league role the following year. Michael Kopech was the other part that moved to the White Sox in the Chris Sale deal. He throws incredibly hard. Do you project him as a starter or as a reliever? He has a chance to start, um, which is sort of a refrain you'll hear for a lot of prospects in that general range of our list. Uh, Reynaldo Lopez is ranked around there, too. And he's another guy that might be a reliever for different reasons than Kopech might be a reliever. But he throws really hard. And that's, look, you can't teach 100. You really can't. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe the Cardinals figured out something with Alex Reyes and got him there. But generally speaking, you can't teach 100. And Kopech's always had premium velocity. Um, the rest of the profile, look, he hasn't gotten to double A yet. The secondaries could still take a step forward. It's just tough to really find a guy that sits in that range as a major league starter. The obvious counterexample is Noah Syndergaard. But Noah Syndergaard is, you know, listed at six six. He might be taller than that. He's a workout freak. You know, he's a, he's a probably one of the most impressive physical specimens in Major League Baseball you know, on the pitcher or position player side. And even he's a guy that's had a litany of arm concerns over the last two seasons. So it's just maybe some risk aversion on my part. Um, you know, Kopech is he's got a Major League starters frame, but he's a little bit skinnier. I just want to see him sort of. I want to see the secondaries get a little better, and I want to see him throw a sort of a full season with a at least a minor league starter's workload, you know, 120 to 150 innings before I sign off wholeheartedly on you know, him being a major league starter. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is a guy who's very high on a lot of other lists, but didn't make your list at all. Why not? I've been answering a lot of Vlad Guerrero Jr. questions today. Um, we like Vladito a lot, um, and he definitely came up Throughout the process, uh, various iterations of the list. We had him, I think, bouncing around in the late 80s, 90s, thereabouts. We might be a year late. I'll be the first person to say we might be a year late on him. My concern is he's probably going to have to move across the diamond to first base. Um, And unlike Raphael Devers, I haven't seen him do this in full season ball yet. And I think that is a reason to be a little bit cautious He's probably in the next 10. And is there really a huge difference between the 108th best prospect in baseball and the 78th best prospect in baseball? I don't think so. Um, That's something that becomes rather crystal clear while doing these lists is that it sort of flattens out very quickly, Uh, especially this year where I think the talent across the minors and sort of in the in the prospect realm is down compared to more recent years. Uh, One thing that stuck out to me when I was doing the list is that for the first like 25, 30, maybe even 40 guys, you know, I was pretty comfortable with their ranking and the order and whatnot. And it got to a certain point where I'm like, is this, this guy doesn't feel like a top 50 prospect to me, but I have to rank him there because I like him better than anybody else that's left. So there's, there's a bunch of guys like that. So I think it does flatten out a little bit uh, earlier on, on this list than maybe it has in, in past years lists. Your mileage may vary with that. So I don't really have a problem with Vlad being top hundred on other sources or, you know, even higher than that, because I think there is a fairly, there's upside there. Certainly. I just, for me personally, um, I want to see, I want to get a little better, a little better handle on his ultimate defensive home and what the bat actually looks like against uh, full season arms before I really go wholeheartedly in the, in the Vlad junior camp. It's interesting. You mentioned the, this group of prospects are thinning out a bit 
compared to years past. And I wonder if that's going to continue. Talent can come in waves at different points and in different sports. And Major League Baseball over the last half decade has seen an incredible surge of talent coming into the league. Do you think this wave is kind of over? So I think our top 15 or 20, I haven't really gone back and and sussed it out. But I would say my feeling is the top 15 or 20 guys aren't that different from on a total sort of a total talent level aren't that different from previous years top 15 to 20 i think it's in like the it is actually maybe more in the good major league player borderline all-star type guys where it's a a little bit thinner right now because i think you'll always find elite talent like the elite baseball talent because like it's identified so early nowadays too um you know getting those guys into professional systems is just going to keep happening um it's going to be like those, yeah, like the, the, the good, the good regulars, the roll six guys. It feels to me like there was just fewer of them this year. I think especially on the position player side than there has been in years past. I mean, it's the interesting thing, too, is there's actually a lot of, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is certainly an example of this. But there's a lot of really interesting low minors talent, you know, even guys that maybe didn't quite make this list. Or guys that were on the back end of it, like uh, uh, Leody Tavares and Anderson Tejeda for the Rangers, jumps uh, right to mind as two guys that stood out to me during the list-making processes. Interesting high upside guys. Juan Soto is another one who we ranked very highly. So you, I think it could look different a couple of years from now. Now, some of these guys won't adjust well to, to full-season pitching. Their prospect list status will sort of ebb and flow over the years. But I think death of major league baseball prospects has been greatly exaggerated i think i'll put it that way i'm going to move off prospects for just a minute before we wrap it up you cover the mets also for baseball perspectives the mets this offseason mostly just decided to bring back the team that they they had last year i mean they literally brought back the entire team except for bartolo Colon. so do you think that's enough for them to compete with the cubs and the dodgers there's two schools of thought on on this well three really uh the first school is the Mets really didn't have the money to go out and make sort of impact changes to the team. And they might not have even been planning on re-signing Jonas Cespedes until he came back with an, uh, a contract that was would have been very difficult for them to turn down from a PR standpoint. And that may have hamstrung them from making improvements elsewhere. But there, there's really not any clear obvious positions they'd be have been easily able to upgrade unless they were going to go out and try to get like Edwin Carnacion or or Jose Batista to unseat Lucas Duda at first base and we can debate sort of the the cost benefit of that upgrade for a year or two given the those players ages the second school of thought is Sandy Alderson in the Mets front office really believes that this was more of a you know a true talent 93 win team last year that got struck by the injury bug which they lost Matt Harvey for most of the season, and he was ineffective when he when he pitched. You know, David Wright didn't play much. You know, Travis Darno and Lucas Duda both had injury issues. You know, Neil Walker missed the last you know month or two of the season with a back issue. So maybe they're just betting on getting the band back together, as it were, and they think the second time around will work out better for them. And I see the school, third school of thought is they actually do think it's like an 87-88 win team like they were last year, and I think Pakoda spit out a similar number for their win total this year in that general range, our baseball prospectus projection system. However, you know, because of financial uh, constraints or whatever re- other reason, uh, a, a free agent class that didn't appeal to them, the inability to trade, trade Jay Bruce, things like that, 
they're just betting on what looks like a high variance 87 win team, which is that if you're going to bring back an 87 win team, it's probably a, a team that could win 93 games or could win 81 games. Is it is the team you want to bring back versus a team that's definitely just going to win like 87 games? Sort of given the the value of those marginal wins between you know 87 and 93, basically, and that it sure looks like that because they have six really really good starting pitchers. They may not all stay healthy. They probably won't all stay healthy. One of them hasn't thrown a pitch in two years. But if they get 140 to 150 starts out of those six guys, they're going to be very difficult to beat in those 140 to 150 games. So that's not a that's not the worst bet you can make. It just when it goes bad, it's it can go really ugly. Do you think Sandy Alderson misplayed the market seeing he signed Cespedes fairly early in the offseason? And then when we saw what Batista signed for and what Edwin signed for, there was still a lot of power left even as of last week on the market. Do you think he overplayed the market and overpaid for Cespedes? Oh, I don't think so. I think Cespedes was pretty clearly the best free agent on the market and they got the best free agent on the market for what was a reasonable, if expensive deal. Like they had already signed him to a, a three-year, seventy-five million with the opt-out. So essentially, all they really did was tack on another two years at a slightly higher AAV. So I think that's if you look at it in those terms, you couch it in those terms. I think the deal was totally justifiable. Was absolutely the right move. Um, you know, he's a lot younger than those guys. He's still actually a very good corner outfielder. He shouldn't play center, um, especially with some of the lower body issues he's had over the last year. But he's still a very good corner outfielder. Um, I think he's a little bit more uh, better, more well-rounded offensive force at this point than Encarnacion and uh, Batista are. So I don't really have a problem with that. Um, I would have liked to see them be a little bit more aggressive in the relief pitcher market. Um, you know, someone like Brad Ziegler, who really didn't sign for that much, given his uh, major league track record at this point as a bullpen arm. And, you know, just sort of, I mean, they got the guys they wanted, I guess, and they got them at less than I expected they would sign for going into the season just by waiting out the market. Um, there were just a lot of, you know, past sort of Kenley Jansen and, and Mark Melanson and Araldis Chapman. There are a lot of good relievers and not enough landing spots for all of them. So, you know, getting Jerry Blevins, who's a lefty specialist that can do some crossover work and even pitch in the, in the seventh inning for you. And Fernando Salas, who's literally a seventh inning arm for about, well, for less than 10 million this year guaranteed, you know, given what guys like Boone Logan signed for, for example. Oh, not Boone Logan. Who's the guy that replaced Boone Logan in Colorado and got the Boone Logan deal? Yeah, he got um, the same contract. Yeah, Mike Dunn. Yeah, is that, that who it is? Mike Dunn, yes, Mike Dunn. So that kind of like, you know, three-year, $15 million deal, they didn't have to give that out. Um, and they've been generally shy about giving out multi-year deals to relievers. I say that they signed Antonio Bastardo last year. Um, but really since, like, guys like DJ Carrasco and... Uh, Frank Francisco didn't work out for them early in Alderson's tenure. I mean, I guess if you look at all the individual deals they made in a vacuum this offseason, they're all fine. Did they improve the team enough to unseat the Nationals that you know went hard in for someone like Adam Eaton to make sort of a real, you know, which allows them to move Trey Turner to shortstop and you know, send Danny Espinosa out of town? Uh, are the Nationals better on paper? I think they probably are. Um, I mean, our Pocota projection system has them within a win of each other. I think that maybe underrates the the gap, but I've said I've, I've been basically wrong about those two teams the last two seasons. So I'll probably be wrong about them again this year. And 
given, I think, the variance in both their rosters, um, over 162, a lot of it will just come down to uh, to injury uh, injury luck and whose starting pitchers sort of are able to take the ball the most. You've been listening to Jeffrey Padanostro. Jeffrey is the senior prospect writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jeff Padanostro. Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me.